All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time as we gather around your word all the way into Corinthians chapter 4. Um, we thank you for your guidance here through Paul about all the, um, Lord, the divisions within the church, but also, Lord, the divisions within us. So we ask you to help heal that, help us to see um, how you want us to see and see you in all things. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as we begin discussion over here, um, I, hit, I hit it too many times already. Here's a bummer about this. They make you start the whole slideshow over. Okay. So discussion question. What does it mean to be a good steward of something? Give an example. What do you think? What does it mean to be a good steward? Taking care, like um, you're, you know, let's say you have a boat, you take it out in the water, when you bring it back, you make sure you rinse it off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So taking care of something? Mm-hmm. Good. In a wise kind of way. Right. Wise was the word I was thinking. Sure, in a wise way. So a steward would be more than like a servant, you think? Mm-hmm. A steward yeah. takes, has a Sometimes little bit more. I think about it, making something last. Okay, making something last. Good. It's interesting. When, when I was uh, working for UPS, I was a shop steward for the U. Okay. That was my title. Shop steward for the union. Yeah, which okay. means I was a lead employee if people had grievances or problems, and I was kind of the intermediary Ooh. between management yeah. and, the, uh, and the drivers. Okay. So, so that, that, that was my title. You were steward. Shop steward. Is what, yeah. Yeah. what it meant was you were taking care of things. Well, yeah. the as union, yeah. As much yeah. as I could within my authority, yeah. Yeah. More, more of a referee than anything. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think there's an element of advancing it in a positive way. Sure, like yes. Growing positively. Advancing it and growing it. So caring for something and advancing it, right? Yeah. Whether it's diligently, you know, caring for your boat, but also advancing it and having a good use for it if you're talking about a particular item. Uh, interesting that you said that I was the lead guy on this. We're going to ho- hold on to that idea of lead guy. Anything else? What does it mean to be a good steward of something? We hear it often in like time, talents, and treasures, right? Be a good steward of your time, right? And what does it mean to be a good steward of your time? Spend it so that spend it wisely. So that's why that word wise comes. Yes. Okay. So spend you, it wisely. Uh-huh. So that you can do the most important things and, mm-hmm. and have enough. Yes. Yes. If you're a good steward of your money as you're heading into retirement, it meant that. You have enough to get you. Sure, yeah, being a good steward. So you got that treasure part, yep. Time, talents, and treasure. Be a good steward of your talent. What does that mean? Use it. Use, yeah, use it. And there's one key thing in steward that we're, that we're missing a little bit of, but Paul gets to it right away in the beginning. We can go to, ooh, if I knock over, this is my wife's classroom. If I bring something, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Do that. What does it mean to be a steward? Let's read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Who's got verses 1 and 2 for me? This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given to trust must prove faithful. Thank you. So my translation has it a little differently in that, in that second sentence. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But I like, it's funny, I like how mine says stewards, but I like how yours says faithful. 
right? So you yeah. kind of get a mix of that. And when you break it down into, into the Greek, right, the word there is going to be steward, but then the second word is going to be faithful rather than trustworthy. And when you take a look at this, what does it mean to be a steward? So Paul kind of pairs it in the beginning. I want you to view us, he says, talking about himself and Apollos, right, leaders within the church, but also y'all, when he says over here how one should regard us, y'all should regard yourself, is what he's saying in that kind of tense. As Christians, this is how you should regard yourself, as a servant and a steward. And a steward is found to be trustworthy and faithful. Right? So we mentioned already a steward is you know, a lead guy. We have it here. Diligent and caring. So finding yourself to be faithful and trustworthy in the way you're caring for something. To take it a step further, Paul uses two different words here, uh, servant and steward. And steward in particular, what it meant at that time, it's like a slave that's the head of the household. So like a slave that's the lead guy amongst all the servants. And when we read a lot of the parables, you know, Luke chapter 12, uh, there's, I didn't write them all down. I should have. But Jesus uses this image an, an awful lot because it's a chief slave who superintended the household and the entire property on behalf of his, his master. So a steward is someone that manages something on behalf of their master. And you see the word steward used with Moses. It's used with Joseph. When Joseph becomes a steward of that household in the, in the, the household of uh, Pharaoh. But more so we hear it in Luke, right? When the word steward is often used with the uh, parable of the talents, right? He gives talents to everybody and saying, says, hey, be faithful with this. You know, you're given ten, you're given five, you're given one. The ones that are good stewards of it, masters of the, the belongings of their, their master's household, Grow it, like Darren said over here, right? The ten talents grows into ten more. The five grows into five more. What's a bad steward? Number three, buries it. Doesn't use it, doesn't seek for it to grow. So in, in particular, that word steward is really important to what Paul's going to address throughout everything. Regard us more as stewards of the mysteries of God, right? A head slave in the household that is caring for his master's belongings. If we go to time, talents, and treasure again... The one thing we were missing is that when you're a steward of your time, you make good use of it. You use it beneficially. Like a man of ten talents, you make ten more. You help it grow. You're caring for that. Who does it belong to? Not you. Not you. It's not about you growing your time and doing what you can with your time. What are you doing with the time God has given you? Right? It's the master's time, not ours. Talents, Right? giftedness, things that you naturally are born with or things you've grown and developed. Whose talents are those really? Are they yours? That's what Paul's getting at. They're a gift from God. You're a steward. You're caring for the gift that God has given you. Treasure is a big one. It's where we struggle with it so much. Martin Luther said the last thing to convert is a man's wallet. <laughs> right? We're caring. And, and we say it often when we say first fruits, right? If you ever hear about giving and tithing, give it, uh, no, tithe, tithes and offerings. We don't say that because of the same thing. Just like how here, servants and stewards aren't the same thing. Tithes and offerings aren't the same either. Offerings are, you know, outside, a special gift, things that are going for. A tithe is when we say giving our first fruits to God, because who does all this treasure belong to anyway? God. Exactly. So we are, again, a steward of our treasure because we're taking care of something that belongs to the master. Does that make sense? So now when he says steward of the mysteries of God, what does Paul mean by that? If you, if you bring it all together, you're taking care of the treasure God has given you, and then, like in the parable of the talents, you're doing what with it? 
You're increasing, you're growing, you're telling people about it, digitally caring for something like we kind of mentioned already. You are one taking care of this gift, you're growing it, but realizing that the mysteries of God aren't yours, they indeed belong to God. Does that make sense? Also, don't you think in, 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 in conjunction with this, that these gifts are not for yours alone, they're to be shared with others? Oh, absolutely. So, 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 so all these are, we're, we're pastors, we're conduits. We're not reservoirs of these gifts. They're, they're supposed to go through us and, and, mm -hmm. and help enrich and grow yep. in others, right? Yep, so you have the passive righteousness. God gave you these gifts regardless of your own... Um, your own self, whatever you thought you could do to earn them, God has gifted you with these, so then you could do what's called active righteousness. From the love of God that pours into you, it can go out to you for the sake of your neighbor. Right? And the Corinthians are struggling a lot with pride. And a lot of the pride that they struggle with, what's the big thing about pride is you don't share it with anybody. <laughs> it's all about me. It's all about how I'm focused. And that's where he's starting here. They're from this position of pride where they're dividing over teachers. Well, I'm trained by Apollos. Who are you trained by? Oh, Paul. You know, it's that kind of attitude, the self-righteous pride that they contain. As you move with this, stewards of the mystery of God, therefore, or moreover, is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or faithful. Again, you go back to that steward metaphor, the main reason of that being, stewards were often left without their master being there. So the master had to trust in them, hey, I need you to do something with what I gave you. And we hear it time and time again, right? And Jesus, I wish I wrote all these down because Jesus, again, I said, uses this metaphor a lot. You know, the servants, oh man, I'm going to butcher this section, but when um, he says, always be diligent, always be on guard for the servant never knows when the master will return. And the last thing you want is for the master to return and you were sleeping on duty. Or last thing you want is for the master to return and you've used up all his goods and you haven't done anything with them. Right, so he's, he's spurring them on a little bit. Again, this is, we talk about two issues, ju uh, justification and sanctification, two big church words, right? How we're saved, Paul's talking not necessarily about that. He's talking about now that you're saved, what do you do with it? Where are you going next? Because now that, now that you know that, again, we talked about the kerygma on our first one, the proclamation of God. Now what do you do with the second half, the didache, the teaching of that <coughs> word? Because right now you guys are doing nothing except for dividing over who you think is better. Uh, oh, wait, I put one in here. How do we see, how do we understand the mysteries of God? Can someone turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 11? And then uh, someone else, oh, wait, huh? uh, Matthew 13, verse 11 for Ross. Can someone go to, uh, so go back to Corinthians, and you can do Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. We kind of mentioned that. I'll give that to, I don't know, Deb. And then chapter 15, verse 51. Can someone take 15, verse 51? Dylan, do you have your Bible open back there? Yes, I do. Awesome. If you could take 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. All right. Go ahead, 13, 11. If you could read that for me. Parable of the sower. Mm -hmm. uh, and he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more, has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not, even that what he has will be taken away. Thank you very much. So you kind of get the end of that parable. We've mentioned it before. To whom much is given, much is expected. We say that pretty often here at Grace. We kind of take that responsibility as a church. We say that often with other churches. Like, hey, here we are. We're in a place where we can not just bless others, but where we want to do more ministry. To much who is given, much is expected. And he talks about the mysteries of God right in the beginning of that. 
Paul talks about this. So this is kind of a culmination where Paul's going to kind of close on that section of, he'll always mention division from here on in, but everything's built to this point. And you kind of see, if you, if you look ahead to the next section, we're getting to sexual morality defiles the church. Paul's going to start getting into the, the single issues. Remember, Paul's written this letter for two reasons. Number one, because of division within the church. And that's what these four, first four chapters are hitting on hard. Number two, here's my reply to all the other things that you wrote to me about. Two reasons he writes the letter, and this is the close of this. And, like, and, and he quotes Jesus right over here. To you have been given the mysteries of God. Those who do not, um, who are apart from God, the natural man or the spiritual man he talks about. Oh, no, spiritual man's good, the natural man he talks about. To them, the wisdom of God and the mysteries of God are what? Foolishness and folly, because you've been given the spirit to understand and comprehend these mysteries of God. <coughs> Can someone take uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 7? Whatever I gave that to before. Jay, oh, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, mm -hmm. but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Okay, so again, talking about wisdom, remember the big thing that these Corinthians <coughs> are focused on? I always remind you of, these, of, of the people he's talking to in every single session all the time because it opens up a bit of what the words are being said. Huge in philosophy, big on, um, they're called sophists, so they want to hear a lot of discussion, they want to do a lot of pontificating and argue for things for the sake of nothing. Paul's saying, I didn't bring to you really eloquent words, I kept the message pretty simple. And then, the, what was seven again, please? But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Mm -hmm. which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I kept it simple, yet it's still a mystery to you, because it's God's mystery. Even when we tell you plainly, you still don't seem to understand it. Uh, 4 verse 1, I think I read that already. Yeah. Read it again, please. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Mm -hmm. So again, he's talking about the Christian person. As you're kind of filling this out, the Christian person should be one who's faithful, and stewarding, meaning using well and spreading the mysteries of God, being the gospel, the wisdom that he talked about already in chapter 2, verse 1. And then 1551. This is near the end of the letter, by the way. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all be changed. What's the mystery? We shall not all sleep. <laughs> Exactly. So, so now he's telling you what the mystery is. We shall not all sleep, but we will be changed. What is he referring to there? Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection, exactly. He talks about it in every letter he writes, of course. It's really prominent in Romans. You know, in my baptism, I died with Christ. But then I was resurrected with him in his resurrection. Right? I kind of mentioned it in our service today that eternal life doesn't start after you die. Eternal life started with when our relationship with Jesus. When Jesus came to us. Right, so eternal life has already began, even though there's a little transition there that we kind of look at a lot. But the mystery of God is this. Not all will sleep, but you will be changed. So consider that for a moment. You will be changed. Oh, Lutheran confessions. I have a bunch of Lutheran confessions stuff in here. I don't know what got me on a kick. Um, confessions, they use the term mystery, mysterium. I read this all the time. And what it's referring to is doctrinal truths in faith. And I wrote one here about the Lord's Supper. But the mysterium they talk about, they have primary ones. One of them being, oh, I wrote these down. Uh, the Holy Trinity, they call it the highest mystery. How can God be three in one? I don't know. It's God's mystery, not mine. But I could tell you what I, think, what I believe and what I think it means. 
according to what God's told us. Another one being the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about that one in a second. Uh, the divine and human nature of Christ. Right? How can, God, how can Jesus be both man and God at the same time? I don't know. It's a mystery of God. I can hopefully tell you about this highest mysterium, they describe it. The doctrine of election, God's foreknowledge, and the bodily presence in the Lord's Supper. So I read this. I, it's kind of in small print. Sorry, let me read this to you. So this is the formula of Concord, the epitome, um, section 7, verse, and it's like and it's divided into stanzas, and this is stanza 42. Here we take our intellect captive in obedience to Christ, as we do in other articles also, and accept this mystery in no other way than by faith as it is revealed in the Word. It's all coming together now. You see how this, this letter is tightening up. It's only by faith in God that you can grab hold of the mysteries by the Spirit that's given to you by God. And as people of God, our job is to be stewards, to grow and share the mysteries of God in order that more people may hear. The parable of the sower, I didn't have the whole thing written, but the parable of the sower, how does it start? Guy walks by and he's throwing out seeds. And we see that, it's like, yeah, that could be God with faith, but it could also be you being a steward of the work that God has given you. You're throwing out seeds. Where did they land? I, I think that's actually, that's Matthew 13. Oh, yes, Matthew 13. Some of them land on the path, and what are they done? They're stomped all over and they're trampled, right? Then they're thrown into the, the rocky soil. What happens there? Spring up and die. They spring up, but it, can't intent, it doesn't have deep roots, so the scorching of the sun then kills them. Then some land in the, the thorns. What happens there? And they kill them all. But what happens to some? They land in good soil. They land in good soil. Being good steward of God, seeking to grow his gift, doesn't, he's not telling you, hey, I want you to be careful of like, where you sow the seeds, man. God's got a lot of seeds. right? You, you can proclaim the word of God to other people, friends, um, as long, you know, friends anywhere in church, as long as the soil is good, something's going to land there. And there will always be good soil. Who put the soil there? That's God, exactly. It's another mystery of God. That's that doctrine of election. Well, why does it? Why, why did this person hear this and, and then faith sprouted within them and this person didn't? The Holy Spirit, which is given to the people that creates fertile soil to grasp hold of the promises of the mystery of God. Do you see how this whole letter, these four chapters, are doing this all the time? It's, it's that, the karate kid. It's, you put the wax on, and now the wax off, right? Wax on wax off time and time again oh look i did write them all on good good job chris so over here during the absence of the master who will return upon will demand a strict account here are the one here are several of them not all of them but here are several of them matthew 25 verses 14 through 30 luke 19 11 through 27 uh, mark chapter 13 verse 34 these are all talking about stewards all these references that jesus makes about being stewards in the in the kingdom of god Oh, I kind of answered that question already. Anyway, if you want to write those down and read them later, great. But they're, it's, it's, it's astounding. You know, it, what I find more astounding is when we kind of go through this. Yeah, they had traditional oral, like, um, storytelling at this time. But Paul isn't opening up his Bible and going, where did Jesus start talking about stewards within Scripture? As we mentioned, this letter is written in 55 A.D. We don't have the first accounts of the Gospels being written down until 70 A.D., no one's got a Bible they're referring to to make sure they mention these things. Isn't God just so cool? Another mystery of God, you could sort of say. How did, how did he inspire Paul to write these exact words that are referring to exactly what Jesus said 
You know, if that's 55 AD, 25 uh, to 30 years prior to that. Awesome. All right, chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Why does Paul see such a small, oh, oh, see it as such a small thing to be judged by others or to judge himself? Let me read this for you. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So why does Paul see it as such a small thing to be judged by others or to judge himself? Because God's the judge. Yes, he's the judge. Now take the image of steward. How does it work with that? Why? Because God's the master anyway, right? Are you my master? No, I'm here to steward the mysteries of God in which he's given to me. It's no, it's a small thing, you know. We imagine, I don't want to say we imagine. So it's been said, like you, you see paintings of Paul or sculptures of Paul. He wasn't the most handsome guy in town. And he, he mentions earlier, he didn't come with them to, with eloquent words here in Corinth. When what they wanted and craved very often was eloquent words. Apollos could kind of do it with eloquent words, so they really liked Apollos. But Paul's saying, I didn't come to you with all this stuff. Yeah, it, it, to me, it doesn't really matter how you're judging me. The one who judged me is my master. I'm steward of his gifts and his mystery, in which I'm sharing with you. I can't even judge myself. I don't know if I'm doing a good job or not. I always say self-assessments are kind of a funny thing, because you're always, um, you always have a blind spot. Whenever you create an identity, it's like, oh, I took the disc. Oh, I took the strengths finder, and I'm a, uh, uh, an achievement-oriented, maximizing uh, input learner. So I can't be anything else. Those are my top five strengths. You tend to create blind spots when you judge yourself. And when someone sees you, they only see one side of you. Right? When I look at Ken, I can see he's got a nice flannel shirt. I, I can't tell if he's got, like, you know, a pentagram on the back <coughs> of it. It's actually a really bad shirt or something crazy. But I can see the front of his shirt, and from what I can see... I can judge that that's a nice shirt, Ken, and that he's a nice guy. I don't know what he says behind my back, but he seems to like me to my face. You only see one side of it. Not that Ken would, Ken, lo- I don't know if Ken loves me. I like Ken, but <laughs> you don't have to love me yet. I know, we're just getting started. But as, as you look at this, again, you see one side of it. You can't judge me accurately. I can't even judge myself accurately, but God can. And the reason why I only care about God's judgment is I'm not taking care of your stuff. I'm not even taking care of my stuff. I'm stewarding what's been given to me by God. And he'll be the one that tells me. And you, oh, is it at the end of this? No. Oh, then each one will receive his commendation. I don't want to jump the gun on that. Oh, I go all the way through five. Good. So uh, I could have a question on all that. So sure. as I look and say, hey, where, where am I at in life? Am I doing what God wants me to do in ah, life? Yes. Don't I have to initially say, okay, I should be doing this. Am I doing that? But that's judging myself. But that's purely transactional. And now I'm, that's why I'm confused in life right now. Sure. So there's what a I, lot there, but there's a lot. I'm judging myself, but mm-hmm. it's not, shouldn't even do that. But yeah, you got to start somewhere, don't you? Sure, sure. Wait, but isn't there a difference between judging and assessing? So, okay. yep. So, there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot more to say, but yes. So. <laughs> Well, no, that's, that's, that's succinctly put. There's a difference between judging and assessing. Here's the thing. We have, um, 
Without getting super crazy into it, think of two terms. We're talking about sanctification and what you do as a result of being saved, as a response. We have law, gospel, and then your response or instruction. Here's what I do because I'm saved. And that's what I get a lot in scriptures. Jesus says, okay, I've done this. Now go. <coughs> right? We have that at the end of you know, Matthew, the Great Commission. All right. I've done all this for you. Now go. That's an imperative saying do something. And he gives an idea. Preach and teach. Baptize in my name, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And we're kind of given more imperatives, things to do. Sanct- you can take that as two ways. We have sanctification, a result of being saved, or you call it the third use of the law. Right? The law does three things. First thing is it curbs bad behavior. Second thing is it makes, it's a mirror. It helps us see our sin and condemns us. The third thing, and it often applies only to the Christian, it sees how I'm not living up to what God's done for me. It's a guide for my life. So two things can happen. God, sanctification, and and third use of the law are kind of like this. God, I've been saved. This is awesome. I'm going to go do this. This is great. When I read that, okay, cool. I'm going to go do that. Or, God, I read what you told me to do as a guide for my life, and I'm just not living up to it. I just can't do it. I feel convicted by what I read rather than inspired. And when you're convicted, it's like, hey, Man, don't feel so convicted. I know you've fallen short, but know that Christ gives you an imperative because of what he's already done for you. Know that you've fallen short, but knowing that God, that Jesus will never fall short for you and that he'll always be there to walk alongside you, empower you, and to guide you. That's kind of the gospel part of the third use of the law. Rather than sanctification. Okay, I'm improving, I'm doing well. So do you see where assessment comes in? Assessment and judgment. Assessment, ooh, man, okay, that's what I need to do. I better start doing it compared to judgment. Man, I'm convicted that I'm not doing this. I really need to be better. And that's, that's what I feel like I'm getting from Scripture. So again, all, you can take almost the same passage, and it's the Holy Spirit within you that discer- determines, is that an assessment or is it time for judgment? And you're always going to have that tango kind of within yourself. Did that, that help? She said it perfectly. I made it longer and might have ruined it. But <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I remember Charles Stanley once. I, I listened to. I used to drive at night and listen to him on. Charles Stanley. Yeah. Okay. I get him confused with Chuck Swindoll, but I know yeah, what yeah, you're talking yeah, about. Cool, quite, quite, quite a radio preacher. We'll put it that way. Okay. Yeah. But he, but he was preaching one, one night and he says, "People always ask me, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? Yeah. What, you know that that thing." Mm-hmm. And he says, "I'll tell you." He says, "Whatever you want to do, as long as it's godly." Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. We need good Christian lawyers. We need good Christian ditch diggers, doctors, mm-hmm. teachers. Whatever you do, do it with a, with, with a godly sense. So, yep. And, 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 and because <coughs> the world needs all of us. Mm-hmm. So he says if, if, if something strikes you in, in your heart that, 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 and, it's, and it's good, then pursue it. And if God blesses it, then you're on the right track. And you'll see that a lot in this letter a little bit later. Right when he starts talking about hey um, the meat meat from idols for example can you eat of the altar of the meat of idols and you'll read and some of it's like sure you can you know it's just meat that's cooked to nothing if you don't believe in it and worship it doesn't matter but if you did it and it made your brother stumble then all of a sudden you're not being a good steward of the freedom God has given you right if God's giving you this freedom that like yeah of course I can have a lamb shank that's been sacrificed to Baal. I don't care about Baal. I know that he's fake. I know the real God, but I love lamb. But if I eat this, and then Dylan watching me, like, oh, so you could be a Christian and eat the lamb shanks of Baal? Man, I'm in. I, I, I could worship him and be, oh, I messed up. 
right? I have misused, I was not a good steward of the freedom that God had given to me. And he'll hit that a lot later in this letter. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Exactly, yeah. And he'll see it, I have a, something that was kind of taught to me very early in my, my Christianhood is like a, a traffic light. Green means go, red means stop, yellow means proceed with caution, right? And you kind of have all three. Green is good, God says these things, they are good. Red is bad. God says these things are bad. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery, right? It's like, okay, do not do that. That's a red light. Yellow light. Paul's the one who talks about yellow light. It's adiaphora. Well, it's neither commanded or forbidden. So when can I do it and when can I can't? You proceed with caution. If you're going to blast through this intersection, but someone's kind of creeping in this way, you shouldn't have been blasting through that yellow light. You're going to T-bone somebody and hurt them because of your actions. But if you proceed with caution... Okay, well, I know when to stop and I know when to go. I can kind of see how it works out. Uh, we get to the end of this section, verse 5, right? Whose judgment therefore matters? We, men we mentioned that. The master's judgment. If you keep with the metaphor Paul's making, it makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah, your judgment doesn't really matter, but we say that all the time. Uh, you can't judge me. You don't know me. Okay, it's not necessarily about, like, what you're saying or how you're dressing. It's, it's the master's gifts. I care for his gifts, therefore the master's judgment is what really matters in the end. Um, and then, why? What does it mean to receive a commendation? Matthew 25, verse 23. Do we have that? I can, I might, if I was smart, maybe I would copy and paste it. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Thank you very much. You see how that went right with what Ross read when he came to the parable of the sowers? Too much is given, much will be expected. Okay, you've given me much, so I'm going to, I assume you're expecting much of me, so now I will use it. And then what's the commendation you get from your master from being a good steward is exactly what she read. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Sorry. I'd like to hear that. Now it doesn't, you know, I could, I'm still saved. Again, this isn't a justification issue. But I'd like God to give me an attaboy at the end. <laughs> you know? says, like, man, I don't know if God wouldn't do this, right? And I shouldn't even have it be recorded. But it's not, you know, if I'm coming, I'm not going to limp into heaven and say, man, you barely made it, dude. You don't even know. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> not that I think God would say that, but I am told, being a good steward of the gifts he's given me, he's going to come give me, you know, it's like, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I like that. I'd like to be a good steward of the gifts God's given me for that commendation, right? Or that recommendation. It's like a father. I mean, we oh, yeah. long for a father to tell you that that was a good thing. Exactly. I mean, you hear, uh, golly, you read any of the child psychology studies. I took adolescent psychology in college, everything. It, it, it all, uh, I'll say it like this. It all kind of comes down to daddy issues is what you read very often, right? Especially the church attendance is a big one, right? If uh, Within a family, if you have a family of four, right? a uh, husband, a uh, wife, and, and two kids. If the husband attends church with his family as a whole, it is 75% more likely that these two children will attend church. Do you know what it is when oftentimes dad, doesn't, dad stays home and mom's the only one that takes the kids to church? Do you know what the percentage is that these kids, the likelihood of, that they will attend church when they're older? 4%. Oh, it's that low. It's that, that low. Yeah. His dad never, his mom and dad never, when my husband. Yeah. And he was the youngest of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, my husband's uh, folks. 
they would, you know, Sunday morning, send him off to the Methodist church. And, yep. And, I, you know, it's, it's, so he's part of the 4%. And now, in all fairness, they may be important ones like Christmas and Easter. Yes. <laughs> but there is that 4% there. So there you go. Good job. <laughs> but you hear that. Why did I say that all? Daddy issues. Oh, we all pray for the, like, and you hear often, uh, what is one of the main things that children want to hear? It's they want their father to say that they're proud of them. Yeah. And it's like, it's not that mothers aren't important. They are. They're very important. They're, you know, a lot of love and, and like how we interact in relationships. We read often. We learn from the mother figure, not the father figure. Right? We learn like, oh, that's how you interact at the grocery store. That's how you talk to somebody of the opposite gender. We don't learn that from our father. We learn it from our mother. Um, we learn how to care for others from our mother. And I'm not trying to like profile anybody. These are just studies that I've read. But that, that big one is like the, the daddy issues of not just attending church. We crave to hear that you did a good job and you crave to hear it from dad. The approval, the approval factor, yep. So I feel that. Uh, let me see. Oh, so what do you mean? So far throughout this letter, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos to help you understand. What he's saying in that verse, let's read 6 and 7. Can someone read that for me? I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for mm -hmm. your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Thank you. So you can see right here, he switches the language. In that first one, he's talked about, this is how one should regard us as servants of God. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware, but I am. I, 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 I. Then we get to verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn, that none of you may be puffed up. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have? He's changed all the language from us and I to you or y'all, right? The receivers of the letter, the people that are listening. And again, you have to realize the culmination of the first three chapters up to this point. Because when he says, I've applied all these things, what he's saying is I've applied so, so far throughout this letter, I've applied all the things I've written about myself in Apollos to help you understand. So the metaphors, he's used three metaphors, three major ones in this letter so far. Um, we just heard the one about household management, right? Being stewards, that was one. Uh, he talked about building not too long ago. Remember, I've laid for you a foundation like a master expert craftsman and builder. And then he talked about farming. That was way before. I threw the seeds, Apollos did the watering, and God gave us the growth. Right? He's gone through three metaphors. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos so you can understand that it's not just about me and Apollos. And Apollos is kind of a local pastor. I, I mentioned that before. But it's also about how you should be acting. It's not just about me. But now it's for you, right? Not to, uh, this is kind of a funky section over here. Not beyond what stands written. When you, when you can't, okay, you have to kind of take that and go, not beyond what is written. Well, what has been written so far? I don't know, a letter? Yeah, not a, not a whole letter. Well, the, the Old Testament. Oh, she got it right there. <laughs> the Old Testament, right? And we've mentioned it several times. How often does Paul quote the Old Testament? Like all the time, right? Especially in this letter. I, I, I'd have to do a little research, but I would wager he quotes the Old Testament more often here than in any other letter per like ratio, right? In Romans, it's an awful lot too, 
Um, he makes a lot of references to the Old Testament. Especially, there's this guy. Do I have it here? Oh, yeah, there it is. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Paul references this one all the time. The man of righteousness, it says. Uh, so it says over here, Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Beyond, uh, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteousness, or the righteous shall live by faith. Paul quotes this section all the time. So that's where that section puffed up, right? He says over here, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, right? That you may learn not to go beyond what is written. So he's again, don't go beyond what is written, which is what? The Old Testament and how it's fulfilled by Jesus, right? So again, we're looking through the Old Testament. Oh, man. Sorry, I looked at the clock. We're looking at the Old Testament through a lens of Christ, how it's all been fulfilled. Don't go beyond what is written, he says. Don't start making new prophecies. Don't start pontificating too hard. Don't start saying, again, there's a big, firm belief here in the time of Greece. It's, uh, what's the philosophy? Man, know thyself is a big mantra, right? Know yourself. Dig deeper. You need to know yourself more. Create philosophy. And he's saying, just don't go beyond what is written. Reference what is written. Paul's talking about the authority of Scripture kind of this early, without even the New Testament being completely in the picture yet. Yes, it's in the picture and as regards to what's been done, but not like it being written down so much yet. I jumped around. Oh, yeah, and this, this kind of uh, affirms it for you. Just in these chapters, right, or right over here. It is written. He says it all the time. For it is written. For it is written. For it is written. You remember when Jesus said it all the time? Who did he do that with? Everybody. Everybody. What's one section that's, that's, that's very popular? When he's being tempted by Satan, for it is written, for it is written, for it is written. Anything beyond for what is written, like Satan's doing right over there, twisting the words of God, trying to project a little bit further, that's the work of Satan. He does that with Peter too, right? No, it is, for it is written that I, will, that I will go into Jerusalem, I will suffer, and that I will die. No, Lord, this surely will not happen. Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter, right? Don't go beyond, for it is written. Did I write uh, quotation. Oh, equation. Yeah. Oh, no, includes it. He says this each time he includes a quotation from the Old Testament scripture, and Paul uses this method nonstop. You can almost see it, like, com coming up. When he starts saying for Israel, oh, I got it. Paul's going for it again. What are these things? Oh, man. Um, I just wrote some of my thoughts over here. Oh, okay, so the three rhetorical questions. Can someone read 6 and 7 for me? Oh, not 6 through 7. That should be, should be like 8 through 13. 7 is the rhetorical question. Oh, thank you. I made this two slides along, huh? Or who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Thank you. One of Paul's favorite teaching, teaching styles, right? The implied question. What's the implied answer to each? Right? Based off of everything we've gone so far, who sees anything different in you? Uh, what do I want to say with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. What, it, he's, talking, he's referring back to the judgment of God. But if we go back over here, what do you have that you did not receive? Again, if you're a steward, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Nothing. Well, everything that you've received has been a gift. Exactly, yep. <laughs> so what do you have that you did not receive? It's all been given to you. It's what he's referring to here. Yeah, yeah. If then you received it, which you did, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As if you worked for it. As if you worked for it. Yeah. yeah. 
And he goes, uh, it's one of those questions <laughs> where you kind of have them, and you wouldn't do this to your children, right? Where you kind of have them and you lead them into, you let them answer the questions until they go, oh. <laughs> At that moment, I, I can do it to my, my six-year-old. When she gets older, it's going to get trickier, I'm sure, Darren, right? But it's just, oh. She'll start doing it to you. <laughs> I know. Oh. Uh, I'm going to read 8 through 13, and I will speak of it very quickly, but we're doing great. Paul writes, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that, that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Uh, so again, I talked about Paul's built everything up to this point. While the apostles seem to be struggling, the Corinthians are already very mature. <laughs> Has Paul referred to that already? You're not mature. You're still stuck on spiritual milk, he said in the beginning of chapter, chapter 3. You're still on spiritual milk. You are nowhere near ready for solid food, for some of the good stuff, for some of the things God has in store for you. Yet you're saying in your pride that you are so wise, you are so strong, you are so mighty, when in fact what you've done is you've missed the big picture. If you have somehow attained this state of being so great, why are we apostles of Christ still left in this seemingly poor state? And he's teaching using sarcasm, if you haven't gathered that. You know, I, I, hear, I hear two rules about sarcasm. One is that you're not allowed to use it until you're over the age of 40. And uh, number two, it's, meant to, it's not meant to just make a joke. It's meant to open the mind of the person in front of them to the silly things that they're saying. Or in this case, to silly things they're boasting about. Oh, you're boasting about this? Well, let me be sarcastic for a moment to kind of open your eyes to what it's really like. Oh, now I get it. And this section in Revelation, it's, oh, it's so good. I'm going to do it real quick, real quick. Revelation chapter 3, it is so pointed, because when, this is John writing to the church in, was it Laodicea or Laodicea? I don't, I don't have it opened it. Laodicea, thank you very much. Chapter 3 is not chapter 2. Study Bibles are great, but there's a bunch of other stuff in it. Here it is. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold, or were you either hot or cold? So you could, uh, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, there's more, but I'm going to stop right there. But do you see how there's, it's not an uncommon issue already? You say you're doing great. You say that you're good. You say that you're strong. You say that you're wise. Oh, that you would see it. 
for what it really is. Paul mentions that. Oh, if you could just see past your own pride to what's really going on. And John writes that to the church in Laodicea as well. Oh, if you could just see past your own pride and see you for what you really are. Um, okay, last one. This is the PG version. I blocked out all the little bits on the base. Um, verse 12. Working with your hands. Who liked working with their hands if you were a Greek philosopher? Nobody! They saw that as pitiable work for slaves. We are far beyond that. There's no way we should be working. And they're kind of taking Christianity in the philosophical sense. They're taking it too much as this high level of intellect that something needs to be explored by philosophy. And, Jesus, and Paul's saying, come on. Like, Jewish boys, we're the guys that, that are preaching to you, but we were also trained in a craft. Everybody was. Peter was a fisherman. Paul is a, is a tent maker. Jesus was a craftsman. You know, even God was a craftsman. He's saying it's not just about the intellectual part and the spiritual, saying that the flesh is bad, but about working with your hands. And what did it mean to be the scum of the earth? Very quick thing on this because it's very cool. You see this picture over here. Um, this is a ship. So to be scum of the earth, this word scum of the earth, it came from two things. And they're both from Greece. Same word is applied to both. Uh, first one being scum, if there was a time of great disease, Within Greek culture, they would take all, a bunch of diseased people on board, take them on a ship, take them out to sea, and throw them off the boat to the gods. as human sacrifice saying, let these people be our scum. Let them be our sacrifice. If you could take your wrath out on these, our scum, take it out on them and not on us. Like a scapegoat. Like a scapegoat. Yes, yeah, so scum for one. Scum for two is right over here. So they're wrestling, right? In Greek exercise, when they would, they would work out really hard, you know, training for games, and they were very sweaty, they'd take a mixture of oil and sand, and they would put it on their body, and then they would scrape off the oil and sand, and then throw it off. How gross do you think that oil and sand was? Same word for scum. It's exfoliate. Exfoliate. Exfoliate, I know. <laughs> Sounds... Sounds like a spa day. Yeah. You're saying we are the scum that, you know, oh, for some reason we are the scum action. and the refuse that gets wiped off your body, the things that are sacrificed on your behalf to make you better. He does that on purpose. Why? Well, it's, it's very uh, dr dramatic picture. Dramatic it, picture? Yeah. Because it's what Christ did for us. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and more so. The scum of the earth that we, he would take all his sin, all our sin, all our disease upon himself and sacrificed so the wrath of God would be appeased and not come for us. It's like, you call us this, and you're kind of right, but you shouldn't look down upon that because of what God did for you. That's the closing thought. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for kind of this big finale in Paul's letter and the rest of chapter 4 as he's just looking to correct these people about their division and pride. Let us not be prideful and divisive in what we do here, Lord. Uh, we ask you to always make yourself known to us, to, to open our eyes and open our ears to, to not just your word, but for what is good. Guide us. Help us assess ourselves in those times where we're just not sure what to do and help it to be a godly thing. Pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Cool. You'll have Mr. Hayes next week.